day that I came into Asia, after what manner I've been with you in all, at all seasons, serving the Lord in all humility of mind and of many tears and temptations which befall me by lying in wait of the Jews. And so again, he's, he's reiterating this. I've been here. This is what I've been doing as I've been here at Ephesus. Look there at verse 31. He says there, therefore, watch. And there's some things when we get to this text, we're going to dive into these, these five things that are laid out here. Therefore, watch and remember that, for a, that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn every man night and day with tears. And so, again, he's giving us the totality of the time that he's been spending in Ephesus. He's been teaching there for three years, but it's interesting as our text directs us. He was there for three years. But I want you to see where he spent two years of his time. In fact, the Bible says daily. He was in there daily. And I want you to see this, if you will. Look there back at Acts chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. We read it this morning. He was in Ephesus a total of three years. But for two years, Luke, as he's led by the Spirit of God, tells us specifically where he was at, how often he was doing it. Look there at verses 9 and 10 of Acts chapter 19. Look what the Bible says. But when diverse were hardened and believed not, <laughs> again, brethren, this whole thing, this pattern that we see again, those who are against the Lord Jesus Christ, against the preaching of Christ, this is their normal thing. Remember, this is what they always do. They've been doing it throughout the book of Acts. They are uh, repelling the gospel. They are trying to stomp out the gospel as best they can, and yet God is sovereign in all of it. The word just marches on. His Holy Spirit continues to apply the word. He continues to, if you will, regenerate men as God draws them through the preaching. And we see this here. Look there. They spake evil of that way before the multitude. He departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannius. And this continued by the space of how many years? Two years. And so of the three years he's in Ephesus, for two years daily he's in here in the school of Tyrannius. Amen. What is he doing there? So that all uh, they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And so, again, we see Paul's ministry as he's, as he's taking off in his third missionary journey. This is where God has him. He has him in the school of one Tyrannius for two years, a three-year stint. But he's preaching and teaching to them the ways of the Lord more perfectly more if you will completely it is an amazing thing again the church at Ephesus played a major role in the ministry of Paul I want you to see this look here at first Corinthians if you would chapter uh, 16 look at first Corinthians chapter 16 Paul's again in Ephesus he writes his first epistle to the Corinth to the Corinthian church from Ephesus look there if you would 1 Corinthians chapter 16, again, how God is using him uh, in all of these churches. Look verse number 6 there. 1 Corinthians 16, look at verse number 6. The Bible says there, And it may be that I abide, yea, and winter with you, that you may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. For I will not see you now by way, but I trust to tarry a while with you if the Lord permit. There it is again. There he's asking the Lord's will. If the Lord wills, I will stay here. If the Lord wills, I'll come back to Ephesus. If the Lord wills, this is what I will do. But look there. But I will tarry where? At Ephesus until Pentecost. And so, again, he's sitting, and the Lord has him sitting there in Ephesus, and he's writing this epistle to the Corinthian church. And again, he also, from Philippi, and part of from Ephesians, he wrote 2 Corinthians. And so, again, we see God using Paul in this most glorious ministry. Now, one more thing I want us to see, clear to the end of Scripture, this church in Ephesus that Paul is a part of here that is being founded, that God is using to take the gospel all across the Asian continent. Look here again, it's mentioned one more time, and we've looked at this in the book of Revelation. Brethren, this is the idea here. This past week, uh, I ran into, well, I ran into several of our customers and and one of them particularly, I was talking to an older lady, and uh, she just made the statement to me that, well, I don't, I don't, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. I don't believe in going to church. I, don't, I shouldn't have to go to church. And brethren, listen to me. <laughs> there is not a bigger lie, hardly, that's been perpetrated on anyone when they say and have this idea that we should not be gathering together with the church with the saints. Never do you see that in Acts. Never do you see that in Ephesians. These letters, brethren, and what's happening here, were written to what? To literal local churches. 
who were what? Literally gathering together, amen, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, to pray for one another, to hear the word preached. This is the pattern. And it's a stunning thing when some will say, well, we've heard it. I'll find God out in the tree. Yes, uh, his general revelation is there because of his glorious creation. But there is uniqueness, brethren, when we're called together, when we're called to come together as a church, as the called out of God, the ecclesia. There is something that all of us need, brethren, every last one of us. You're not lions and bears, as Spurgeon said. We are sheep. And we come and we gather together. But again, we, we see this. Look at Revelation chapter 2 just real quickly. Again, this is a literal church. This is the church at Ephesus that is written of in the book of Revelation. Look there, if you would, Revelation chapter 2. And again, we, I think it was Howard this morning during Bible study, even said, you know, there is this church. There are these churches in the book of Revelation. And you think of it, brother, and actually all seven of them are in the region that Paul is in. It's a stunning thing. They are literal, local churches whom God had established and started. But look at here what he says, Ephesians chapter, or Revelation chapter 2. Again, there's accommodations. There's a little bit of, shall we say, of a criticizing by, this, by God himself, by the Lord Jesus. But listen to what it says. Under the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, and walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And we looked at all that. We can't go into there today. But listen, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience. I know how thou canst not bear with them which are evil. And thou hast tried them, and which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. And hast borne, and hast patience for my name's sake, and hast labored, and hast not fainted again. Jesus himself is just saying, this is what the church of Ephesus was like. The literal local church. They were faithful. They were doing all of the right things. And then he says this to them, to this church that we're talking about in the book of Acts, that God is founding, that Paul is preaching at, that he is catechizing them in the truths of the word of God. Look at verse 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy what? Thy first love. And so, again, we see this. We see the, if you will, the building up of the church, the constancy of the local church, and the great need, brethren, for you and I to gather together, to be together, to hear the word of God together, to be edified together, to be, uh, if you will, bend the knee to the one true God, the God of Holy Scripture alone, no one else. This is what we need. This is what's happening. This is what God is establishing here in Ephesus as he is uh, kicking this thing off. It is also here in Ephesus that Paul finds certain disciples who seem to be, if you will, a mirror image similar to Apollos and that they too were deficient in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, brother, as I said last couple of weeks ago, if you think you've arrived in your knowledge and in your understanding and in your growth of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in trouble. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care if you've been a preacher for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. I used the example of John MacArthur when I was there at the uh, Shepherds Conference. He's 80-some years old, and Paul Washer's preaching. And what is John MacArthur doing? I mean, I was stunned. I'm sitting right next, almost next to him. I'm looking over there. He's got his Bible on his lap, and he's got his note pen out, and he's taking notes. He's one of the greatest preachers of our era. What is he doing? Always learning, always listening, always trying to grow in the Lord. And this, brethren, is why it's so important. As the churches are established, and even today as we are gathered together, we're not here, brethren, to put on a show. We're not here just to play games. Do you realize where our nation is going? Do you realize what our Senate and our Congress did this week? With the help, by the way, brethren, listen to me. I'm going to get political for a second, okay? <clears throat> you can't trust the Democrats or the Republicans. You realize this, don't you? You realize that 39 Republicans just jumped on board now to pass the unholy, if you will, unholy what? Despising of Marriage Act? It just goes on and on and on, brother. They just continue. And I was telling someone the other day, I was talking about our children. And, brother, and how we're going to have to really train them in righteousness. 
train them in the truths of the word of God. It continues to go down the proverbial toilet. It's a stunning thing. Instead of turning to God, instead of repenting. And what did Nadler say not too long ago? God has no business in this house. Yes, he does. Oh, yes. He's very much aware of what you are up to and what's happening in the house and in the Senate and everything else. It's a stunning thing, brethren. But this is why it's so important. Well, he's there. He runs into these disciples who are, as I said, very much like Apollos. They were not completely understanding the whole the totality and personhood of Christ. Again, Apollos was what? He was fervent in the spirit. He was eloquent. He was all of these things, and yet he was deficient in some major essentials concerning his preaching. It is the same here. Look there, if you would, at verse, at verse number 7. How many are there? Well, look back. We've got to get back to Acts chapter 19. Go back there. So, again, these, these disciples that he runs into, and you look at verse number 7, the Bible says there, and all the men were about 12. So there's about 12 men who were there, amen, that had been taught, and they're trying to, if you will, figure this thing out. They're being catechized, if you will, as Paul continues his teaching of these 12 men. In fact, look at verses 2 and 3. This really is quite an amazing thing when you study this out. Acts 19, look at verses 2 and 3. The Bible says, this shows you the deficiency that's there. He said unto them, have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Brethren, do you ever read a, a portion of text and say, how can this be? How can this be that they haven't even heard whether there be a Holy Ghost? Especially when you look, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 1. What does it begin with? It begins with who? That you stay here in Jerusalem and I'm going to give you what? You'll be endowed with the power of the Holy Ghost. And it's the Holy Ghost all through the rest of the book. It's a stunning thing, the work that he is doing. And yet here they are, men who have been disciples and they know nothing about it. Look at here what it says. And he said unto them, unto what were you baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. <laughs> Brethren... <laughs> Even more than this. This is a most curious response, as I wrote in my notes to myself, to Paul's question. We have not so much as even heard whether there be a Holy Ghost. These disciples, brethren, were completely ignorant of what took place at the day of Pentecost. What's been taking place all along in the book of Acts as we have been reading and seeing and the things that have transpired. Not only that... This is the sixth time. Now, brethren, please, maybe you'll get a hold of this when you, when you try and grasp this. I was trying to just get a hold of this. What could possibly have taken place where they knew nothing about the Holy Spirit of God? This is the sixth time in the book of Acts that John the Baptist's role as the precursor to Christ is mentioned. It's the sixth time, brother. It's a stunning thing when you... Consider that out. Look at verse number four there. Again, let me, let's read that together. When John the Baptist is mentioned, when his ministry is mentioned, when his role is mentioned, not to mention, we're going to hear what John the Baptist preached. It's a stunning thing. Again, I'm, my mind isn't very big. It's not very wide. And just to read this and try and grasp and understand why they could say we didn't even hear there was one. Look there at verse 4. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. Again, we see this thing, brother. It's an amazing thing. In fact, this is now the second time that Paul references John the Baptist in his preaching. Not the first. It is the second time. It's a stunning thing. In his preaching, John the Baptist is, in fact, uh, mentioned again and again. In fact, look at Acts chapter 1. Just a couple of them here. I want you to see this. Acts chapter 1. The, the Acts opens up with the Lord Jesus Christ, as we know, preaching. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a stunning thing, isn't it? And I want you to see this. Jesus first mentions John the Baptist right here in chapter 1. Then Peter mentions him for the first time, which Peter mentions him again, and Paul mentions him again in their preaching. It's quite stunning. Look at uh, Acts chapter, chapter 1 there. 
Look at verse number 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the what? With the Holy Ghost, not many hence days. And so again, right here, we see Jesus himself referencing the Holy Ghost. And from here on out, that's what you see. The Holy Ghost appears in chapter 2. The Holy Ghost is working all through this thing. And yet we get here to this, cha- this particular chapter. They know nothing about the Holy Ghost. It's quite a stunning thing. Look at verses 21 and 22. Again, Peter mentions it. Wherefore, these men which have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. He's talking about the qualifications to be what? To be in the inner circle, to replace the one who betrayed him, which the scriptures said he would do. He was ordained to do it. So they're saying there's qualifications here to being, if you will, in the inner circle of the apostleship. Verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John. So there it is again. There's a reference to John. This is, this is the area in which we must, you, this, you must fit within these parameters. It's from the baptism of John up until when? Until the Lord is ascended. Again, John the Baptist being referenced over and over again. Look at Acts chapter 11. Just a couple of them here. And then we're going to get to what John preached. Acts chapter 11. Look there, if you would, at verse number 16. Again, uh, this, of course, is the second time that Peter mentions John the Baptist. And look there, if you would, at verse number 16. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with what? With the Holy Ghost. There, there it is again. Here this, this group of men, amazingly, brethren. See, <clears throat> I often think what Howard says and sometimes what Dean says concerning this. Brethren, one error begets another. And you know what happens? It isn't long, and your errors are so drastically moved away from the truth, you don't know what truth is anymore. It's stunning. This is what has to have happened. It has to have been the situation where those who were preaching, they had gotten a little bit, and then they moved farther away and farther away. These people didn't even know there was one. It's a stunning thing. And yet we see over and over again in Scripture the Holy Spirit of God being mentioned. Look at Acts 13, just one more time. Acts 13, look at verses 24 and 25, and then we'll, we'll move on. When John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. For as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one uh, after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, he goes on there again. Here again is the the mentioning of John the Baptist. These disciples had been baptized in what? In John's baptism, which is quite a stunning thing. 1825, we don't have to go there. We know that Apollos only knew the baptism of John. John the Baptist, brother, as we all know, was indeed the Elijah who was to come. These Jews were looking for him. They constantly, you know what, brother? They're still looking for him. You realize that at the Passover, they're still looking for Elijah to come. They have a chair seated as they gather around an empty chair waiting for Elijah to come. They do even to this very day, waiting for this pre-runner, this precursor to come. And here, John the Baptist mentioned over and over and over again in Scripture, his role that's played. He was indeed, brethren, the Father's elect preacher. He was indeed the Father's elect preacher, the last Old Testament prophet. This morning we were in the book of Malachi. Malachi quiets down by speaking of what? Christ's second advent. You don't hear a word until John the Baptist shows up, the pre-runner, if you will, the Elijah who is to come, who will prepare and make straight the ways of the Lord. Here he is, right in the center of all of this preaching. He was the father's elect, who he used, as I said, to prepare the way for the coming of Messiah. Now, I want you to see this. I want you to turn with me to the book of Luke. Again, where Luke recorded the book of Acts, and so Luke records for us the inspired narrative of John the Baptist. And I want you to see this again, brother. I'm not beating a dead horse. I'm just asking myself, isn't it stunningly amazing as I ask my little brain these questions? How could it be? How can it be that one would miss what John the Baptist 
preached. Look there at Luke chapter 3. Luke had a keen pen as the Spirit of God led him to write these things concerning John the Baptist. You remember what Paul said? John the Baptist, he was preaching what? Repentance. That's what he was preaching. He references it in verse number 4 there for us. John the Baptist was preaching repentance. I want you to see this as Luke records this. Look what we see there in John, or Luke chapter 3. Look at verse number 3. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of what? Repentance for the remission of sin. This is what Paul just said. He's, he was preaching that. That's John's baptism. This is what he was saying. But I want you to see what we see here. Verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words Isaiah, or Isaiah, the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is John the Baptist preaching. This is what he's doing. He was indeed the Elijah to come, but he, he was preaching a baptism of repentance. Look ahead there. Brethren, of verse number 8. Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of what? Of repentance. That's what he was preaching. Repent. The Lord Jesus Christ is at hand. Repent, all of you. Well, look what the people do. He's preaching the baptism of repentance. I want you to see their reaction to John's preaching. The baptism of repentance. Look at verse number 10. <laughs> this, brother, this is what every preacher whom God is using, prays for. When he's preaching sin, when he's preaching the wrath of God, when he's preaching repentance, this is the kind of thing that every preacher prays the Spirit of God is moving on the crowd to cause them to do this. Look at verse number 10. And the people ask, saying, What shall we what? Do. That's a picture of Repentance, that is a changing of the mind. That's a changing of the actions. So John's preaching the baptism of repentance. What do they do right away? What should we do? Look at verse 11. Look at there if you would. He answereth and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And him that hath meat, let him do likewise. Now I ask you this morning, brethren, is that going to save them? I hope you say no. What they're doing here will not save them. But it is a picture of repentance. This is what he's preaching. See, this is the whole idea that we're going to get to here. That John's preaching of the baptism of repentance pointed people to Christ, but it never got them there, brethren. This is the part that's missing. This is the, if you will, the part that is missing in their preaching. Look at verse number 12. Not only did the people come and ask, look at verse number 12. Then came also publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we what? Do. There it is again. A preacher who's preaching out. He's got camel hair. He's eating, eating amazing locusts and these kind of things. And he's preaching under the spirit of God. And the people, all they can say is, what should we do? Well, look what it says. And he said unto them, extort no, uh, no more than that which is appointed unto you. Brother, is that going to save them? No, it's not. It will not. It cannot. But look, he's not done. Look at verse 14. Not only did the people, not only did the publicans, the sinners, the tax collectors come, but even the soldiers that are there listening. Listen, look what it says. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? Repentance. This is the idea. This is what John is preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Stop doing all of these things. That's part of repentance. It's an action. It's a turning away into something. Look what it says there. What shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Brethren, let me ask you again the third or fourth time. Is that going to save them? No, it's not. But it is indeed the repentance that John is preaching. He's calling on them to repent. It's an amazing thing. In fact... Go ahead there with me, if you would, just a little bit farther. Well, as we've read down here, let's keep reading. Look at verse number. <clears throat> he's, he's all the soldiers, the people, the publicans are all there. Look there at verse 15. And as the people were uh, in expectation 
And all the men mused in their hearts of John, whether he be the Christ or not. John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water. But one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with what? Do you see that there? He shall baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit. There's John's preaching. He's preaching concerning repentance. And he's also in his message telling them that Jesus Christ, who is going to come after him, he of whom shoe latches, I am not even worthy to stoop down and untie, he will baptize you with the what? The Holy Ghost. How is it, brethren, that these 12 men who have been baptized with the baptism of John had no idea, hadn't even heard, if there is a Holy Ghost? Brethren, all we can do is look at it and see the importance, how one is catechized, how one is learned in the word of God, how one teaches the whole counsel of God. Or, as we said earlier, one error begets another error, and it begets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's an amazing thing, brethren, to see this pattern, to understand what these men are actually say, saying. Paul points this out in our text, that John's baptism was indeed one of repentance, one not yet bringing, as a matter of course, as I said earlier, a faith unto salvation. He directed them to repent, but it was not, if you will, complete. Why wasn't it complete, brother? Because when John was preaching, the Lord Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection had not even happened in earthly time yet. That's why it's incomplete, because that portion is missing. That which saves a man, a woman, or a child, that which they must believe on is not whether they've repented and stopped doing this or stopped doing that. It's whether you've repented in your mind concerning who Christ is, concerning his personhood, concerning his work. Is he the Christ? Is he the one that died, was buried? and rose again according to the scriptures. That's what saves. Not John's baptism of repentance. It could not save anybody no more than it can save you today. And brethren, unfortunately, this is where most religious people are. I'm so thankful, brethren. I grew up in religion. Now, there's good religion. James speaks of godly religion, doesn't he? There is good religion. We can't, you know, many Baptists throw it out. No, actually, there's good Biblical religion that one as a Christian can participate in. But when one is trying to be saved by that religion, when one says, oh, I took a bunch of money, I'm going to give it back. That'll save me. Or I did this, and I'm going to do this. That way it'll, I mean, brother, and it's going on right now. <laughs> right now, you got people crawling upstairs and going backwards and doing all kinds of, I mean, it, you know, it won't be long come, uh, if you will, resurrection morning over in India and many of these places, there'll be somebody hanging on a cross with nails driven through them, almost dying, thinking that that is somehow getting them, what? Favor with God. You can crucify yourself a million times, and you ain't got, is that ain't even a word? See, <clears throat> you have no favor with God, apart from believing in the one who did indeed die according to scriptures, was buried according to scriptures, and rose again according to the scriptures your religious works can't save you it's a stunning thing here to see this and here these men are again just simply needing to be taught more perfectly those things about the person and work of the lord that alone brethren you go from being lost to saved on that alone it's stunning isn't it when you consider this in fact i like what jc ryle said he said this, You may cast away your old habits, as the serpent casts off his skin. But if you are not resting all upon the Lamb of God, who takes away all of your sin, <laughs> you are just ignorant of the root and the foundation, and it will save no one. Stunning, isn't it, brethren? Again, we, we see the importance of the preaching that's taking place. Now look back there at Acts chapter 19. Look at verse number 5. We're going to see this, a glorious response. And there's, there's really so much here um, for us to discover. But I want you to look there at verse number 5. 
Look what comes out when the Lord Jesus Christ uses his preacher to preach the whole counsel of God concerning salvific matters. Look at verse 5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord, or in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, brethren, succinctly and ever so boldly woven throughout all the pages of the New Testament, along with scores, and I mean scores, brethren, a plethora, can I use that word? A plethora of prophetic passages that contain and teach the lordship of Jesus Christ. Brethren, this is so important for us to grasp and get a hold of. The lordship of Christ. This is what these men begin to realize. They are under the authority of John. Now they are going to be under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. His lordship. Something that's missing drastically. We were talking about it this morning. The law of God. Brethren, you don't keep the law to be saved. You can't anyway. We know this. But you know, well, coming up here in a few nights, Lord willing, if it doesn't storm, we're going to look in Revelation again like I brought up this morning. In Revelation chapter 14, he, th those who are in the tribulation, in the great tribulation, God is telling them to keep the commandments of God. To, in other words, that word literally means guard it. You know, remember what he told Adam? Hey, Adam, I'm giving you the garden here. I want you to, what, keep it. To guard it. To obey it. Why? <laughs> because, brethren, it's for our good. Wednesday evening, Lord willing, I'm going to take you. People ask, is, are the Ten Commandments, and I'm just talking about there's 613 other laws that Moses came down with, but he specifically calls in the Bible these Ten Commandments that he brought down on the plates, right, when he brought them down. And I will demonstrate to you, because Andy Stanley, in his book, The New, I like that word, The New, Jesus and what he brought he literally says in that book on page 136, you can go look it up. I command you not to obey the commandments of God. The biggest devilish antinomian devil that's walking the planet right now. So you ask yourself, can I go to the New Testament? Can I see each of the commandments in the New Testament and the practicality? Where's Brother Keith? He's not here. But the practicality of that? Brothers, I can show you to have no idols. I can show you not to use the Lord's name in vain. I can show you the Sabbath in the New Testament. You know who our Sabbath is, Christ. He's our Sabbath rest. It's there. All of them are there. And they're designed there, what? I, I don't want to launch off on my Wednesday night sermon. They're designed really for three purposes, brethren. Number one, to show the holiness of God. The Ten Commandments save nobody. They can't. But they do show the holiness of God, amen? And they are a schoolmaster. I take you to Galatians and show you what it is. It's a schoolmaster designed to show us how crooked we are and lead us to who? Lead us to Christ. And also, brethren, they are indeed good for us. <clears throat> Suppose those in Washington, D.C., or Chicago, Illinois, or California, where there's more gun control laws than Carter has liver pills. Wouldn't it be nice if the governors would stand up and say, we ought not murder one another. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not. That doesn't save you. But what it does, it keeps my marriage right. Mm-hmm. It keeps men right. It keeps women right. It keeps children right. Hey, how about number four? Children, obey your parents. Well, I can take to Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents. It's all there, and it's for our good. That's what it's for. We should have a president who would stand up and quote Jeremiah chapter 6, shouldn't we? Seek ye out the old paths and walk therein. For in them is life. But what does our Senate do? What does our Congress do? They stick their proverbial tongues out at a holy God by doing away with the Defense of Marriage Act 
and just letting it be any soup and slimy, devilish thing that you want. Amazing. Okay, I got sidetracked, brother, in a little bit. But the idea here is this, that in our lesson this morning, in the scriptures here, there is a lordship of Christ. There is one who's been regenerated who willingly submits to his lordship. My Lord and my God. Who said that? Thomas. <laughs> my Lord and my God. Over and over again, the lordship of Christ is present in those who are true believers. No different here. They are submitting to the authority and to the lordship of Christ, thereby saying to the world that John is lesser than Jesus, that Jesus' authority is all authority. And this is what they did. They submitted to that and were baptized in the name of the Lord. They publicly submitted to his lordship by being rebaptized in his name. That's exactly what they did. Thereby declaring, as John the Baptist declared, there cometh one after me of whose shoe latchet I am not worthy to even bend down and unloose. This is what we see. Look at Acts chapter 2 quickly as we bring this to a close. Look at Acts chapter 2. Peter again preaching. He's laying the gospel out there. He's talking all about, if you will, an Old Testament text. Verse 34. Psalms 110, look at here. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all of Israel, let the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this Jesus, both what? Lord and Christ. And this is what they're coming to understand, that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why we use the Lord is Lord. He's master. And you know what else he is? Like Siamese twins. <laughs> like, like Siamese twins. Think of anything that goes really good together. And this is even much more holier than we can even imagine. Like Siamese, Siamese twins. Like peanut butter and jelly. Like Reese's and chocolate. You know what else? He is Lord and Savior. He is both. You ain't having Lord without Savior. You're not having Savior without Him as your Lord, period. I don't care what liberal theologians say. I don't care what liberal preachers say. I don't care one whit. God will hold them accountable for teaching such nonsense, for teaching Andy Stanley's nonsense. It's stunning. Not here. You see here in Acts chapter 2, let me say it again. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know surely that God hath made the same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is Lord and Christ. He is Lord and Master. He is Lord and Savior. He is both of those. Hence, these 12 men who were baptized with John's baptism now bow their knees, brethren, to the authority and lordship of Christ by undergoing his baptism thereby saying to all that they understand the superiority of Jesus to John. This is what we see. You know, three times. This is the only place, by the way, in the Bible anywhere, in the book of Acts, where someone's rebaptized. It's interesting when you think about that. It's the only place. It doesn't even record that Apollos was rebaptized. These men were because of the deficiency that they had concerning who the Lord Jesus is and his authority and his lordship so look there again as we bring this to a close look at acts chapter 19 look at verses 6 and 7 look there if you would and when paul had laid his hands upon them the holy ghost came on on them and they spake with tongues and prophesied and again and all the men were about 12 after these disciples were baptized, 
Paul lays his hands on them and the Holy Ghost comes upon them. And immediately, the Bible says here that they begin to what? Speak in tongues and prophesy. Now, brethren, I don't have to go into this too deeply, do I? I mean, we, we answered this, what this is, in Acts chapter 1, in Acts chapter 2, I mean, on and on it goes. What you're seeing is a unique manifestation of the Spirit of God for a very specific purpose. Brethren, this isn't, as the charismatics say, a second blessing of any kind. Oh, the Wesleys. How about that? You know, it's amazing, isn't it, where this all stems from? Sound men in the faith, and they, you know, they, they come up with this stuff. Therefore, Whitfield said, I'll be your friend, but guess what? <laughs> You're going to be over here. I'm over there. It's amazing, isn't it? This is indeed is used by God in the book of Acts for a specific person, uh, purpose to verify that they had indeed received the Spirit of God. That's what it is. This is the fourth, brethren, and I know we've got to finish this up. The fourth and final distinct time in the book of Acts whereby anyone receives the Holy Spirit in this fashion. This is it. You don't ever see it again. The first was in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. I already mentioned it. Let me give you the audience. Let me give you who was speaking in tongues in the audience quickly. We remember the tongue speakers were the apostles and some of the others that were in the upper room, the 120 that the Spirit of God fell. That's who was speaking in tongues. And it was indeed, as we've seen, an audible language of every language that was there. It's not some gobbledygook. The audience was unsaved Jews. Again, brethren, keep this in mind. Anytime there was a miracle, anytime there was speaking in tongues, anytime that happened, there were always Jews present there, always, every single time. Mark it down, write it down. There must be a pattern there. I don't know, I'm just saying it occurred before salvation. And what was its glorious divine purpose? Was to show the Jews and the unbelieving Jews the prophecy of Joel chapter 2 coming to pass. That's what it was. The second time we see it in Acts chapter 8 where the Spirit was given to the Samaritans. You remember the Samaritans, don't you? There was unbelieving Jews. Now we're moving to the Samaritans when it happens. What were the Samaritans? Who were the Samaritans? They were what? Half-breed Jews. They were half-Jew and half-this over here. What did God do? He sent the Spirit the same way. Again, verifying what? That not only are the Jews saved this way, but also the half-Jews. And, brethren, again, we see it, and we don't have to go and read it there, but the third was in Acts chapter 10. The tongue speakers were Gentiles. It was Cornelius, remember? A very set time and a very set place and a very guarded, if you will, uh, speaking in tongues. Very guarded. The audience was saved Jews, Peter and others. Brother, you have to keep this in mind. Because when you don't, when you get outside of the regulative and regulatory principle, when you get outside of the normative in the church today, you get what you got out there. People puking and barking like dogs and whatever else they're saying the Holy Spirit's doing when they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit in such a way. It occurred, brethren, this is important, the timing. Because, again, we have many who have built doctrines on a transitional book. Doctrines on baptism, doctrines on salvation, water salvation. I mean, it's stunning. It occurred at the same time of salvation. And God's divine purpose there was to validate for the Jews that God accepted the Gentiles. This is what he's doing. A very, if you will, structured organized, uh, holy way of doing what he's doing. It's the same here. Here we have these men whom God is again validating that the Spirit of God in his manifestations is validating what he's doing. That's what it is. These supernatural manifestations were God's method of working in the days before the New Testament was compiled. We all believe that, don't we? I, I believe that. I like what one pastor said. Today we know that we receive the Holy Ghost at the time of conversion, not by signs or wonders or feelings. Although when I was saved, I can assure you, 
It felt good. I was very emotional. Realizing what God had done. Brethren, there's nothing wrong with having feelings. <laughs> God gave them to us. But the feelings can't run the train. The feelings can't run the train. I feel like God's going to send gold dust out of the ceiling today. You can't do that. It is confined within the New Testament scriptures. It's amazing. Not by wonders or feelings, but by the testimony of, as I said, the New Testament scriptures. The moment one believes on the Lord Jesus, they are indwelt by the Spirit. They are sealed by the Spirit. They are given the unction of the Spirit. Think of this, brethren. Well, all that takes place when one believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these things happen. And brethren, they are indeed baptized spiritually into the kingdom of God by the Spirit. All of this working of the Spirit is such a glorious thing. When you consider that, what New Testament scriptures say, let me ask you this morning. Why do we need more? Isn't it enough? Isn't it sufficient? Isn't it glorious enough that God would do all of these things as he writes it out in the New Testament, and yet we've got to add more to it? Because I think the Spirit of God is making me puke or is making me do this or that. They have callers now. Yeah. People are literally getting on their hands and knees, crawling down the aisles with a dog leash on with some moron following him as they're barking down the aisle, claiming that it's the Spirit of God. No, it's not. That's where you go, brethren, when you get outside of Holy Writ. Now, let me just say this as I bring this to a close. I've been saying this for 20 minutes. Am I going to stand up here and say that God cannot do what he wills? Never in a million years. If God, if Dean and his family, when they go back to India, and God does some miraculous thing where Dean just starts preaching in, what's, what's the language there again, brother? Telugu. Without any learning, any understanding, I will never say God didn't do that. He's speaking in a tongue. God can do that if he wishes. I will never stand in his way. God miraculously does give individuals some amazing abilities. And we've seen some of these things that take place. But brethren, let me just say this as we close. That is not the norm. That is not the norm that you see over and over again in the book of Acts, which is indeed our inspired narrative of the building of the church of God. He can do that. And I believe he still does do it when he feels and wills to do so. But that is not the norm. This is not what we see. That's why, brethren, we are so, <laughs> well, I guess criticized. Because we hold that, as we're going to get on in our text, I wish I had a little time, I don't. But verse 11, God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. And you see what happened. I've never done that. Brother Dean, have you, an elder, ever done that? Howard, you ever done that? Any Christian ever done that? You ever done what Paul just does here? His body were brought down to the sick, the handkerchiefs, the aprons, the diseases departed from him like that? No, that's a, no. No, that's not the norm. What the norm is, is for us to turn our Bibles and go, oh, uh, I'm supposed to go over and pray for the brother who's sick. I'm supposed to get the elders together and put oil, which we've done. We practice that which is in the New Testament, which is given by God. That's why teaching the word of God is so important, the whole counsel. Let me close with this practical point. The frequent mention of the spirit of God reminds us again and again the importance of the spirit of God. <laughs> over and over again, we are reminded of that. And it is the Spirit of God that empowers the work of the apostles in the early church. No question about that. No question. But brethren, the Spirit of God is just as important today in the church today. This is what we see. In fact, I like what 
A.W. Tozer once said. Imagine that, quoting A.W. Tozer a lot. There was an Arminian that understood the sovereignty of God. He said this. You know, in the book of Acts, if the Spirit of God stopped working, they would know it immediately. They would have felt it immediately that the Spirit of God stopped working. He asked the question. Now, he died in 1963. We're a long ways past what was happening in 1963. And it's been down the sewer a long ways from where he was at. And he simply asked this question. And I want you to consider and ponder this question. If the Spirit of God stops working in our fellowship, will we notice it? Will we see it? Will we understand that he's not working? It's a great question. It's a great question for us to ponder this morning, just as these men did. Are we doing it in our own strength, or are we simply submitting and bending the knee to the authority of God and to his word and to the Holy Spirit of God? Without the Spirit, brethren, we can have pews that are full. They're all over the place. Pews are full. The coffer could be running over. And in many of them, it is. But brethren, I will not trade them for one second. Not for a second. I don't think any of us elders would. I don't think the brothers here would trade that for anything. We must have, and to have any spiritual power at all, we must be spirit-powered. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we rejoice and thank you this morning for your word, that which is holy and true and never changes. Father, we thank you this morning for the text that you have preserved down through the annals and ages of time for us. We thank you for that which it taught us this morning. And there is really, to be quite honest, as we all know, there is so much depth there that it, it's, it's, it's 